I'm Mike Breen, Public Awareness Officer for the American Mathematical Society, and I'm talking with Kathy O'Neill, who's the founder of ORCA and the author of Weapons of Math Destruction, a very popular book. And we're talking about algorithms or really their unfairness. Uh, so Kathy, you know, a lot of us know algorithms from uh, high school or, or grade school, really. And, and sometimes we think the only way to do multiplication is the algorithm we're Told, but but really that's not true. Uh, but algorithms nowadays uh, figure in much more to people's lives than just long division, for example. Uh, so can you tell us, really, the gist of your book? You know uh, how prevalent they are and what's their their what their flaws. Sure. I mean, and by the way, when I say algorithm, I don't mean the division algorithm. Okay. Um, I mean the sort of the big data predictive algorithms. Um, so they are predicting the future based on historical data and some definition of success. And so it, basically they all come down to a certain type of form, which are like, given the initial conditions of this, in the past we saw that it either succeeded or didn't define relative to a very specific definition of success. And then when you, you sort of train up an algorithm, the predictive algorithm to see patterns, pattern match, um, so that when they are presented with a set of initial conditions, they decide basically, is this likely to succeed in the future? So there's a time concept too. So there's historical data that said, here's a bunch of initial conditions. Here's the yes or no, did it lead to success or not? And most predictive algorithms are essentially set up a scoring system, What's the, which you can think of as kind of like a probability of success. Um, so how are those used? The answer is in pretty much every bureaucratic process, like especially the ones where people don't like to be blamed when something goes wrong. So something's like messy or complicated or uh, has a lot of judgment. Um, uh, if it was just purely rules-based, wouldn't need predictive algorithms. Um, if it was a simple rule, like everyone with the following, um, you know, who, everyone who applies gets to do this. That's not an algorithm. You don't have to predict anything. Like you just, Everyone who wants to vote should be able to vote. That's the kind of thing that this should be a rule, not to say that it is a rule in this country, but it's much more when it's a value judgment. So it's like, what I want, uh, who should get a loan if they, if there's loan applicants, uh, who's like, who deserves a loan. And that's the kind of thing where like, well, we're going to predict who is likely to pay it back. And then we're going to say, that's the definition of somebody who, should, who deserves it. Uh, who deserves insurance and how much should they pay for insurance? Who deserves a job? And how much should they get paid? Who deserves a raise? Who, who deserves to get fired? It's that kind of thing uh, that predictive algorithms are being used for. Um, so as I just mentioned a few things, it's like any kind of, any touchstone that you have, any interaction you have with enormous bureaucracy used to, used to be humans that, you know, looked over your application or record or whatever it was and decided whether you deserve something. Now it's computers. And, uh, and it's problematic because we are problematic. I mean, the idea sort of initially, maybe 10 years ago, was that, oh, computers are not biased, so they'll do so, so much better a job. But of course, what they're doing is they're training on our historical data. So they're gonna repeat whatever we did. I mean, that's one of the problems. That's not the only problem. The other problems are like, the data's really bad sometimes, not just bias, it's missing. Um, and that's certainly true for any kind of what we call crime data. I don't like to call it crime data because it's not, a, it's not a good enough proxy for crime to call it crime data. It's really arrest data. So it really just is a record, an artifact, if you will, of how police 
record things in the official record. Um, but there's, so there's missing data problems. They're just bad choices for what definition of success is. Like Facebook's definition of success is like, what keeps you on Facebook? It's not, you know, it has nothing to do with what we would de define as our, as what success looks to like to us on social media, because it is, as we have learned, um, all too, um, you know, all too recently, what it does is it privileges upsetting um, and shaming and outrageous misinformation and fights because fights keep people on Facebook. So it's not, it's not that surprising when you think about it. But anyway, the point is that it's not just biased data and historical bias, which is a huge problem. It's also all kinds of other problems. I can't even list all the problems that this um, happens. But I guess the, the high level thing I wanted to explain in my book was that there's nothing, there's no, there's no reason for us to essentially trust these algorithms. Um, that, you know, even though they are touted as mathematically sophisticated, well, there might be some mathematical sophistication in that pattern matching um, out, un underlying mathematical structure. Um, if the data is bad, the definition of success is bad, or just like the process has no oversight, no appeal system, and mistakes are not caught and not fixed, then we shouldn't trust it. And yet we were being asked as a society to hand over these very, very important, critically important decisions to the machine and, say, and to, to expect them to be somehow perfect. Yeah, and I, I think I remember, I mean, you, you probably know a lot of uh, problems with them, but one thing I remember is that I think you called them proxies. There are things that sneak in that don't aren't really relevant, but are taken as very important to the decision. Yeah, I mean, I, the example I already mentioned is this, we talk about arrest data as proxies for crime. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the, it's such a, it's so bad um, there's like that I have like six different thought experiments to explain how bad that is but like one of them is my uh, just imagining what our society would actually look like if we if we had a digital artifact i.e. data for every crime that actually occurred you know so like sometimes when I give a give a talk I'll ask the audience to raise their hand if they know anyone who's ever smoked pot but not been arrested after that you know what I mean if yeah everybody knows that People commit crimes all the time and don't get caught. So there's an enormous amount of missing data. And I don't just mean pot smoking. Like most, like only a small bit over half of murders lead to an arrest. And less than half if the victim is black. Very, very few um, uh, rapes are reported. Uh, relative to how many occur. And of the reported rapes, 7% lead to an arrest. Um, and those are the crime categories I can name off the top of my head. Like, they're just, it's just like the crime crime data doesn't exist. We have arrest data. And the, the secondary issue, which is not very secondary right now in the in the context of the George Floyd protests and, and, the, and police practices under scrutiny, is that the missingness isn't equally distributed. The missingness is much more missing for white people, for white crimes than it is for black crimes. And so you get to these kinds of conversations with people who will defend profiling of black people by saying, oh, but black people commit more crimes. And they're getting it wrong because they're, conf they're confused about what we are, do what the police are doing 
um, which is swarming black neighborhoods looking to arrest people, um, where they just simply would not get arrested doing exactly the same thing in a white neighborhood. Um, so that's, that's uh, the worst possible proxy. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of bad proxies. Like uh, another chapter I spend an entire chapter talking about the US News and World Report's college ranking system. Um, and they're sort of like the original, you know, big data model, to be honest, like, and especially the most influential, it's an early example of an influential model. Influential is simply because people care about these rankings. Um, like we don't, they don't, it doesn't have any official power. It just is the power that we bestow on it as parents and as students, mostly as parents. Um, but it's like the qual, it's supposed to be measuring the quality of a college and it just uses terrible proxies for the quality of college. Like how many people, would I say terrible? They're terrible in large part because they're gameable and they are game, they're widely gamed. And the more they're gamed, the less power they have as quality proxies, right? Proxies for quality of college. So things like, you know, how many people get accepted to apply? Well, just get more people to apply, especially people who won't be accepted. And you can game that. That's what we've seen. Or how many people who apply, who get accepted, actually show up? Or how many freshmen, um, you know, drop out? All these things have led to unbelievably awful gaming. The, and the, of course, the one thing that isn't measured as a proxy for quality is cost, like as if we don't care about cost or something. And the consequence of that has been it, as the administrators have gained these models, cost has, gone, has skyrocketed and it hasn't affected their standing, their ranking, because they're not measured on that. So there's, in, for the gaming, for the purposes of gaming, like tuition was irrelevant. So it became very large. So that's another thing you see, sort of like squeezing a balloon, like they're, gaming these metrics and the other metrics are going nuts and that's perfectly okay but it's not okay i mean the, the point i was making in that chapter is like it's been hell for parents and kids and i i have kids going to college and it's like it's unbelievably uh horrible and it goes it goes it it sort of propagates backwards and forwards i would say like backwards in the sense that like even in middle school and even even before middle school some of my kids friends were already under pressure to like look good for college and for that matter like you get to college and these kids are so trained to care about their grades that they they take classes that are too easy so they can get good grades it's like what at what point do we get to challenge ourselves intellectually and become like thinkers you know it's just a terrible terrible system now, I, I know you, it hasn't been, a, a, you know, a decade or since you wrote the book. It's just a few years old. Uh, and then, you know, but have things gotten better since you've, you published the book and, you know, other people are aware of the problems with the algorithms? Well, uh, I guess I would say qualified somewhat um, in the sense that I think it's become a lot more prevalent as an issue in large part because everyone is under so much algorithmic um, power. Like they are, they are more and more realizing how much algorithms control their lives. And um, in spite of the fact that one of my biggest concerns in writing the book is that the algorithmic harms are hard to measure, examples do every, every now and then show up. And so those examples have been helpful in getting sort of more of a awareness uh, 
by the public that these things could be really problematic, especially along with the lines of racial bias um, that has become more obvious. I worry that things like um, penalizing the poor, uh, which I think is just as prevalent, and I could say why, if not more, um, and probably just as prevalent as racial bias in algorithms. It doesn't seem to be as um, scrutinized. Um, so on the one hand, you have better awareness, so that's a good thing. But the bad thing is that, like it hasn't changed much. Like I haven't seen algorithms get vetted. I haven't seen algorithms like actually stop being used. Um, but it's a step. I'm not saying I'm not saying I'm disappointed. Like the when I was writing the book, I did not know of anyone else who was thinking about this problem. And now there are large communities of people thinking about these problems. And it's really, really satisfying to see that. And it's, it's good. Having said that, like nothing, nothing, nothing has happened at the federal level. My book came out right before the, the election, the 2016 election. And like, I was all set to get a job at the CFPB, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, wow. which is what Elizabeth Warren set up and like talk about racist um, credit modeling. You know, and like that didn't happen. Nothing is like those. You know, the federal at the federal level, these kinds of issues have just been a completely ignored. Uh, so, what, from your opinion, what should mathematicians do, or or students who are interested in maybe trying to fix all this? Are there any courses they should take who would like to you know make things better? Um, <laughs> is that a big question? Maybe ethics. Uh, you know, I, I, my goal isn't, by the way, to be clear, it isn't to get all mathematicians and data scientists to be also ethicists, um, because ethicists exist and they can they can do that job. Uh, my, mostly, my go my goal is to make sure that mathematicians and data scientists don't think that they don't have to worry about ethics. You know, that they they should be like, oh wait, what I'm doing is implicitly making is is implicitly solving a trolley problem, like. I shouldn't do this by myself. I should get a public conversation around this um, before I lift another finger towards analyzing this data. Um, and what's happened instead is that like, with crime risk scores, for example, like somebody will, the people who hire the mathematician data scientist to build a crime risk score will say, well, they're the PhD, so they must know what they're doing. We're just gonna do, use whatever they make and we're gonna trust it because of course they're so smart. Whereas the person building it is like, well, I'm not an ethicist, so I don't get, you know, I don't get to decide how to use it, and it's not up to me. I'm just building it. I'm just following the data. And so if you if you follow the logic there, nobody in particular is in charge of really important decisions that could be deciding whether someone goes to prison or doesn't go to prison, or how long they go to prison, or whether they get parole. And no one in particular seems to be in charge. So like that's a problem. I don't think the the solution is make mathematicians or data scientists become experts in everything. But I do think they absolutely must say, like have some kind of, really what I want, by the way, is a society for data scientists with like, with, with an ethical board where they have, where, where someone who's being asked to, to do something that is really beyond their expertise, like an ethical choice, um, can say, no, that's not my job. Like you, you need to follow the following process, like some kind of uh, review board process. And if, if you're not doing that, I refuse to do this job. That's the kind of thing we need eventually. Um, right now, we're just sort of, yeah, we're just sort of um, expected to 
make problems go away as data scientists um, so that nobody has to actually have the hard conversation. Kathy, is, is there anything you'd like to add? Any big thing that we missed, do you think, on this topic? I mean, I would, I, I should probably know of like the different programs across the country. I know there's something in Berkeley um, that already offer kind of data science with ethics, with ethical considerations, and there's stuff popping up all over the place. But I want people to be aware of the fake ones popping up as well. Like, so there's a lot of what I call ethics washing going on. And it's, um, you know, like, where, where instead of talking about like what is happening right now with, with actual algorithms being used with scoring systems for people to decide whether they deserve something or not right now, there are conversations about like future human, like machine consciousness and, you know, like abstract future problems. Um, that's, I'm not saying that those are interesting questions and like they're almost philosophical philosophical questions about the nature of like our, our relationship to machines and stuff like that. Fine. But they're not, they're not current practical ethics for, for, for working data scientists, which is desperately needed and sometimes not really done. Sometimes we're pretending we're talking about ethics, but we are actually just talking about philosophy. Um, you know what I mean? Like abstractly rather than um, practically. Uh, well, Kathy, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us. I know you, know, you talked about that you're moving, so that's a lot of fun. And, and so a half hour is precious to you probably. Uh, thanks very much. That, that's Kathy O'Neill, who is the uh, founder of Orca, uh, which advises people on algorithms, right? Yeah, I audit algorithms, um, which is I hope, hopefully going to be a new field. Hopefully a lot of data scientists can go into that. And, and I'll say again that uh, Kathy's the author of The Weapons of Math Destruction. Uh, Kathy, thanks very much and, and good luck with the move. My pleasure, thank you very much.